the perfect crime. Is there such a thing? In 1950, 11 men thought they had committed the perfect one. The biggest ever. And they were just days away from getting away with it, but at the last moment, it all came crashing down. Today I have the story of what is called the Great Brinks Robbery on the 147th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Did you ever think how bizarre it is that we have coffee? I mean, someone figured out that if you take coffee beans, which are not really beans, roast them, grind them up, and pour hot or boiling water through them, you get a wonderful energetic drink that is great in the morning. How wonderful is that? Oh, by the way, how are you doing this morning? Today we talk about the 1996 film Twister starring Helen Hunt and Bill Paxton. The thing about this film is, the hero of the film, Joe Thornton, played by Helen Hunt, the person we are supposed to be rooting for, is just an awful human being. She's the bad guy. She and Paxton's characters are getting a divorce. Paxton is starting a new life with the beautiful Jamie Gertz, whom he wants to marry, and he's taking a job as a well-paid weatherman. And he has to drive out to the middle of nowhere to get Hunt to sign the divorce papers. I can only assume that he's tried over and over through the mail, but she's just flat-out refused. Otherwise, why would he drive out there? But Hunt uses blackmail. If you do this last tornado run with me, I'll sign the papers to try to win him back. And, of course, in the end, she breaks up his wedding plans, gets him to give up, apparently, his high-paying job so they can be together. And Paxton is scum, too. Instead of showing his future wife any respect, he not only puts her in a dangerous situation, but he rides in the truck with Helen Hunt while he makes her ride with creepy Philip Seymour Hoffman. And Gertz is nothing but nice throughout the whole film. So in the future, when the dust settles and Paxton remembers why he wanted to divorce Helen Hunt in the first place, and now he's in the poorhouse eating baked beans because he refuses to take sponsorship because for some reason that's selling out, and he thinks back to the life he would have had as a six-figure TV weatherman with a beautiful wife who loves him, well, let's just say Twister 2 would be an ugly story. And by the way, what's wrong with Carrie Elwes taking sponsorship? Isn't that what scientists do all the time, to get money so they can do their work? Why does that make him the bad guy? Their trucks are black, so they must be bad. Anyway, it's way too cold in Chicagoland for this time of year, but I've got a hot cup of coffee and a story to tell of crime and betrayal. This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network, You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. The story you are about to see actually happened. 
It is a dramatization of an actual case of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Most names have been changed to protect the privacy of those involved. In the movies, there's a common crime story that I'm sure we've all seen. A career criminal gets the idea for the perfect crime, the big one, the crime of the century. He gathers together a group of men, partners in crime, who all have their specialty to carry out his scheme. They plan and rehearse the crime, going over every detail until one day they put their plan into action. By the end of the story, the perfect crime turns out, well, not to be as perfect as they thought. There's always something they overlooked, a mistake, an unexpected event, a flawed human being, which brings them down in the end. Today we have one of those stories with twists and turns, greed and betrayal. But this one really happened. It's a true story that happened on January 17, 1950 in Boston, and it's most likely the basis of many of those films, television shows, and books. It begins with a man named Joseph McGinnis, known as Big Joe. He was a Boston liquor dealer with a long history of robberies and narcotics. Big Joe had a dream, and that's of the big score, the perfect crime. In the summer of 1948, he got together with Anthony Pino, who was known as Fats. You know, it seems to me that to be in the underworld, everyone is required to have a nickname. Anyway, Big Joe and Fats began plotting the ultimate robbery. And while it was Big Joe McGinnis who dared to dream the big dream, it was Fats Pinto who was the true mastermind. Actually, Pinto and McGinnis had known each other for years and had often thought about robbing Brinks. The Brinks Armored Car Service in Boston was a conduit for all the major payrolls in the area. Their offices processed up to $10 million daily. They were originally located on Federal Street in Boston, and for one reason or another, this was thought to have too many problems and dangers for a robbery so it never happened. But in December of 1948, Brinks moved from Federal Street to 165 Prince Street, and the two felt that this new location was an easier target. Because of the roofs of the buildings on Prince and Snow Hill Street, their activities while they were casing the place would be unnoticed they could watch the building with binoculars day after day. For almost two years, Pinot planned the robbery with McGinnis's help. They went over every detail and along the way recruited more men to help. The first of these were Stanley Gusiara. His nickname, of course, was Gus. And Joseph O'Keefe, who was known as Specs because he wore horn-rimmed glasses. One of the most risky parts of the plan was for them to get the keys to the locks to the doors. If they were going to get in and out swiftly and unnoticed, picking the locks wasn't an option. So on successive evenings, Gus and Specs would secretly enter the Brinks Depot using an ice pick and a piece of plastic to open the doors. They would remove the cylinders from five locks one at a time so a friend who was a locksmith could make duplicate keys. They would return the locks the same night and put them back into place before they were noticed missing. Once they had all the keys, even more men were recruited. A real rogues gallery of underworld all-stars. There was Pinto's brother-in-law, Vincent Casta, Michael Vincent Vinnie Jean Jacule, Thomas Sandy, Francis Richardson, Adolph H. Jazz Maffei, Henry Cohen D., 
James Gilmetz Faraday, Joseph Bansfeld, and a few others. And I apologize if I pronounced any of those names wrong. The gang studied the building from an apartment across the street to determine what would be the best time to break in, based on the lights being on and off in the building's windows, and they watched the police to see when they patrolled the area. They used any available information concerning Brink's schedule and shipments. They stole the plans for the site alarms and went on practice runs after the staff had left for the day. They'd spent almost two years researching, planning, and training for the big day. It was thought during the first week of November, a 1946 Green Ford stake body truck was stolen from a car dealer in Boston to be used in the robbery. They wanted a new truck, thinking that a used truck might have distinguishing marks. They had at least six failed attempts due to what they considered not optimal conditions, the last on January 16, 1950. But the next day, things went down for real. On the night of January 17, 1950, they climbed in their stolen truck and drove to the Brinks building. Parking next to a playground that was adjacent to the building, seven men climbed out and made their way to the Prince Street entrance of Brinks. Entering the Brinks building, they wore outfits similar to Brinks uniforms, navy peacoats, chauffeur's caps, and Halloween masks. O'Keefe wore crepe-soled shoes to muffle his footsteps. The others wore rubbers. They made their way up the stairs, through hallways, having keys to all the doors, and into the vault area. At 6.55 p.m., as one man was on lookout on the rooftop across the street and two men waited in the getaway vehicle, the seven entered the money counting room with guns drawn. The five employees that were working that day were taken by surprise. They were bound and gagged with tape over their mouths and laid face down on the floor. The gang worked fast and said almost nothing. During the robbery, the gang was surprised when the Brinks garage buzzer sounded. The robbers removed the adhesive tape from the mouth of one of the employees and learned that the buzzer indicated that someone wanted to enter the vault area, in this case a garage attendant. Two of the gang members moved towards the door to capture him, but the garage attendant walked away apparently unaware of what was going on inside. The robbers didn't pursue him, but they picked up the pace to get out quickly. In 35 minutes, in a crazed rush, they loaded 14 canvas bags with a half ton of cash coins, checks, securities, and money orders, everything they could find but the general electric payroll. The GE money box was thought to contain a million dollars, but as hard as they tried, they could not get it open. In the end, they had a total of $2.7 million, 1.2 of that in untraceable cash, and that's equal to about $12 million in today's money. With the bags of loot, the gang jumped into the back of the truck. There was no elation in the truck, O'Keefe would later say. We had been through this routine so many times that, suddenly, there was no kick. Just a little satisfaction, I guess, that the getaway had been so clean. It was the largest armed robbery in U.S. history, and amazingly, no one had been killed or even hurt. The only evidence left behind was one cap and a length of rope. Nothing to help the police. Brinks offered a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the robbers. Now, if this were a Hollywood film, one of the crooks would have been a crazed wild card. 
Maybe a mad, angry man who uses his mouth or gun too much and gives them away. Or maybe it would be the nervous guy who panics, then, under pressure by the police, confesses. Because no matter how well a robbery is planned in the movies, the bad guys always seem to get caught. The Brinks robbery had one of those wild cards, and his name was Joseph Spex O'Keefe. The gang left behind no clues and knew the only way they could be caught was to have the money traced back to them, so they made a decision to hide the loot for six years, only spending some of the untraceable cash until the statute of limitations had passed and they couldn't be convicted. Now, the way the crime was done, with its precision and speed, it stunned law enforcement. Things happened so fast that the Brinks employees couldn't even agree how many burglars were involved. The Brinks robbery quickly became a media sensation and started one of the most intensive criminal investigations ever undertaken. But there wasn't much for the FBI, the Boston Police, or the Massachusetts State Police to go on. And over time, they began accusing one another of withholding leads. One thing they could do, as the cliché goes, call in the usual suspects. They called in and questioned many underworld figures they thought might have the ability to commit such a crime. The FBI agents contacted hundreds of New England hoodlums in the weeks immediately following the robbery. One of these was Spex O'Keefe, a man who had numerous convictions, several for holding up bookmakers in craps games. He told the police that he had been drinking in a bar and learned of the Brinks robbery over the radio. Spex must have thought he'd done okay because he was released. But the truth is, he was a suspect from day one. Anthony Fats Pino was also an immediate suspect. He was well known in the underworld as an excellent case man, and it was said that the casing of the Brinks office bore his trademark. Of course, like all men involved, he made sure he had a good alibi. So did Big Joe McGinnis. Every now and again, a person facing a prison term would have claimed to have hot information. You get me released and I'll solve this case in no time, these criminals would often claim. One Massachusetts racketeer confided to the FBI who were interviewing him that, if I knew who pulled the job, I wouldn't be talking to you now because I'd be too busy trying to figure out a way to lay my hands on some of that loot. Authorities began getting tips and theories from many well-meaning Americans. For example, one citizen in California came with the suggestion that the loot might be concealed in the Atlantic Ocean near Boston. Each of these leads were checked out, but none were very helpful. One day, two small boys were on a beach five miles north of the Brinks building and found two guns. Their father threw these weapons in the garbage. A policeman found one of the guns, and it turned out it was stolen from one of the Brinks guards during the robbery. The other gun was never found. Joseph Spex O'Keefe and Stanley Gossiera were always prime suspects. They had been known to work together on many occasions, and neither had very good alibis. When parts of the truck that were used in the robbery were found cut up with a torch in a junkyard not too far away from the home that O'Keefe and Gossiera lived in, more suspicion fell on them, and their home was searched. Spex wasn't too happy that evidence was left so close to his home by the other crooks. In April 1950, the FBI received information saying that part of the loot was hidden in the home of a relative of Spex O'Keefe. A federal search warrant was obtained, and on April 27, 1950, agents searched his home. 
Several hundred dollars were found hidden in the house, but could not be identified as part of the loot. On June 2, 1950, both O'Keefe and Gussiera left Boston. O'Keefe would later say that he had given all his money to Maffei for safekeeping, money which he would never see again. In Pennsylvania, O'Keefe and Gussiera were pulled over by police and it was discovered they had money relating to another robbery. They were arrested. Spex was sentenced to 5 to 20 years in the Western State Penitentiary at Pittsburgh. While he was fighting these charges, police learned that he had been in contact with people in Boston trying to get money to fight his conviction. These men were Pinto, McGinnis, and others from the Brinks robbery. After one stint in jail, Spex was up for a second trial, this time for burglary, larceny, and receiving stolen goods, as well as a parole violation for carrying a concealed weapon. He was released on a $17,000 bond and returned to Boston. By this time, law enforcement was keeping a pretty good eye on him and those that he had been calling. Spex O'Keefe took drastic measures to get his money. He kidnapped Vincent Casta, the man who had been the lookout during the robbery, and Pinto's brother-in-law, and demanded his part of the loot for Costa's ransom. Pinto paid a small ransom to Specs, and Costa was released on May 20, 1954. Now Specs and the rest of the gang were enemies. Specs began writing angry letters making dangerous threats. Now, a criminal organization does not take threats lightly. In this case, a hitman was hired to take care of the situation. On January 5, 1954, O'Keefe was driving in Dorchester, Massachusetts when a car pulled alongside. Spex, realizing that something wasn't right, fell to the floor as his car was sprayed with bullets. The hitman missed. Nine days later, an assassination was attempted again and failed. Probably frustrated by the fact that Spex was still alive, a professional hitman... Elmer Trigger Burke, on June 16, 1954, used a machine gun on Spex, and this time Spex was hit in the chest and wrist. But somehow he survived. Spex wasn't the only gang member having problems. Anthony Fats Pino was fighting a deportation due to his criminal record, and Maffei was convicted of federal income tax evasion and was serving a nine-month sentence in a federal penitentiary. Spex was eventually sentenced to 27 months in prison on the probation violation for carrying a concealed weapon. The FBI, by now, knew they had found the weak link in the Brinks case, and they began to go after O'Keefe. Finally, after much pestering and a threat that they would let him out of jail and have his enemies have their way with him, Joseph Spex O'Keefe, on January 6, 1956, cracked. All right, he said. What is it you want to know? Spex O'Keefe turned witness and turned everyone else in. The members of the crime were arrested just days before the statute of limitations ran out. It took almost six years and $25 million, but authorities got their men with very little time to spare. We had all the pieces to the puzzle for a long time and knew pretty well how they went together, an investigator said but we didn't have anything to make them stay together until O'Keefe talked. By the time they went to trial, two of the gang members already died, including O'Keefe's friend, Gussiera, who died of a brain tumor. Spex ended up getting four years in jail, 
The other eight got life sentences. When Joseph J. Spexokeefe was released from prison, he went under an assumed name. He moved to the West Coast, and one of the jobs he got, strangely enough, was a chauffeur for Cary Grant, who never knew his true identity. Joseph Big Joe McGinnis died while he was in prison. Spex died on March 27, 1976, from natural causes at the age of 67. He was still living under an assumed name on the West Coast. The year before his death, he was interviewed in the Globe, and he confided that he longed for the day when he could shed his anonymity. I'm tired of not being myself, he said. It would be like coming out of a cave. In the end, the police recovered only $58,000 of the $2.7 million stolen. To this day, no one has found the money. When the film was made of the crime in 1978 called The Brinks Job with Peter Falk, two of the men, Richardson and Maffei, appeared as extras. January 1950, the biggest and the craziest robbery in history took place. The Brinks Job. It was a crime that nobody in their right mind would go into. And nobody in their right mind did. Peter Falk, Peter Boyle, Warren Oates, and Jenna Rowland star in the Brinks job. Frankly, no one thinks you'll pull it off. Who's no one? Everyone. The Brinks job. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. A couple last things before I go. Do you ever find it strange how we can find ourselves rooting for the bad guys? Even in a story like this, it's common to hear people say something like, gosh, they were so close to getting away with it. If O'Keefe could have kept his mouth shut for just another week, they would have been scot-free. Yeah, but they were bad guys who did bad things. Even a movie like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which was based on true events, it's hard not to root for them and feel disappointed when they're killed at the end. What is it that makes us want to root for the bad guy and look at the police or the authority figures as, well, the bad guy? We've all done it. Don't tell me you haven't done it. Anyway, well, I've been getting a lot of uh, show ideas from a lot of people lately, and I really appreciate it. Uh, Russell and everybody else, thanks for thinking of me and giving me some suggestions of show topics. It really is helpful, and I've, I have a list of them. I'm going to start using a lot of them in the coming weeks. If you have show ideas, you know, feel free to let me know. You can email me. You can use Twitter. You can use Facebook, whatever. And like I've said in the past, if I don't use your idea right away, it's on a list, and I'm sure I'll get to it eventually. But now, why don't we get to the ending credits? I need you to do me a favor. I need you to go over to Sicon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm. Look at the top for the Patreon link. Just look at it and think about becoming a sponsor. We could really use your help. And of course, thank you to everybody out there who already supports the show. Speaking of Sicon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? Do you like Doctor Who? Oh, not that current show but the classic episodes from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. If so, you should listen to Who's Who. On the latest show, Brecky and Petter talk about Battlefield from 1989, starring Sylvester McCoy. Hey, I was just thinking that. They're going to run out of shows pretty soon. What are they going to do next? 
Anyway, you can find this and other SciCon shows over at SciCon.fm. If you want to email me, you can do so at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can do so for any reason. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page, of course. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and I understand that, go over to iTunes for me and leave a review or a couple of stars or something. Those really help. I mean, seriously, they really help. And remember, all the links that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every day, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You will always have a special place in my heart. Thanks, everybody. I'll be back in two weeks with another thrilling, exciting, entertaining story, I hope. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. 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 Coffee with Jeff.